the only way that it's going to pull sweat off your skin is if it's in very intimate contact with your skin. <laughs> and every time I like, I pull one of these on, I'm like, oh yeah, COVID, COVID body. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's getting more and more intimate with it's your getting- <laughs> skin. as you. <laughs> Our intimacy is increasing with time. Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. It's just uh, Andrew and myself today, and uh, we're going to do another compression shorts episode where we talk about a bunch of different things without doing very deep dives. And of course, that made me think of calling it rather than compression shorts, calling it shallow dives. You know, the kind of you know shallow end dives, the kind of thing that that your your swim coach and your yeah. told never your, to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get kicked I out am. of the pool. Yeah, and here I am. So we're going to do some shallow dives today on a bunch of uh, a bunch of very disparate topics just because these things have been accumulating in our in our podcast Slack channel and you know we want to address them. So uh here we go. Yeah, there's some kind of cool tech here and I think you've done most of the the digging and finding lately but just looking at some potential future developments. So um we can I guess roll right into it and uh talk about roller chains or lack thereof. <laughs> sure. This was, yeah, this was a, an article that I just, that just came across my social feeds um, uh, for a totally radical chain redesign. And, and bicycle chains have been pretty much bicycle chains since, uh, since bicycles have been invented, <laughs> since this, the traditional drive of the bicycle chain. Uh, the, the pitch on them, they're, I think they're a number eight chain. Uh, so they're, they're, I think, oh, I forget my chain spacings, my ANSI designations for chains. But the the spacing between the uh, the links are obviously fixed because that's how the spacing between the teeth and your gears and your uh, your pulley wheels and your cassette and your chain ring. Um, and then the only thing that's really happened is that they've uh, they've become a little bit more efficient and they've obviously gotten narrower the as uh, as manufacturers added speeds from from five all the way up to 13 now with uh, with Campy's new drivetrain. But that's only on the outside that they've gotten narrower. Um, the actual internal width, as far as I can remember, it fits the standard that you mentioned, the whatever the ANSI standard is. Um, I think it's half inch, half inch pitch and something like three 30 seconds width. Um, it's some weird number, but uh, yeah, it's basically the the more speeds you have, the more you're trying to pack into a cassette and really the overall width becomes a limiting factor. So if you want to put more speeds on, you need something that's not going to interfere with the teeth next to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to cut out that that width somewhere and you en- end up with a, uh, a thinner chain, less material, less weight, but uh, something that's ultimately weaker and maybe more prone to breakage. Right. So this new chain, and again, folks, we're we're just uh, basing this on a cycling tips article and not not having done a ton of research. That's why this is a very surface dive. <laughs> so all of you chain aficionados out there, um, you know, please do correct us if we say anything that's uh, that's a little bit off the mark. Uh, but this thing's really neat, and uh, I'll link to the article in the show notes because it's it's definitely something you need to see to fully appreciate. But the the upshot is that it's it's mechanically more complicated. Uh, there's a lot more going on in this chain. Um, but what the uh, the folks here are trying to accomplish is increase the number of points of contact between the chain and the chain ring specifically, but also the cassette. The thinking go the thinking is that even if you're on your big chain ring 
and you know let's say you've got a 53 tooth chain ring and you've got you know the chain wraps around i'm going to sim- oversimplify half that chain ring and you would expect you know maybe 26 to 27 points of contact along that uh, along that chain ring in reality it's it's a lot less than that because of chain wear um you know some ring some tooth wear but even just tolerances they the the torque that you're putting through the system the force that your your chain the tension that your chain is uh is transmitting is not distributed over 20 plus teeth in my scenario it's it's distributed among far fewer than that. And that definitely causes friction. And uh, these folks um, talk about the fact that there's a 2% drivetrain loss in the chain, no matter how optimized your chain is. And I think that that bears out um, based on some of our research into the ceramic speed stuff that we talked about uh, a few episodes, well, many episodes ago. Um, So what these guys are trying to do is create a chain that that outperforms um, these other chains by actually um, improving or increasing the number of contact points um, and reducing friction that way. So for me, this is kind of interesting because when you see a picture of the chain, like it's incredibly complicated. Um, there's going to be issues with shifting the way it's currently made. Um, it's it's going to be heavier. There's there's a lot of things that need to be addressed. And it's not saying they can't be addressed because every every time a new idea is introduced, you, you have to solve these problems. There's always going to be something. Sure. But I look at this and then I look at something like belt drives, which are becoming common with Mm -hmm. e-bikes. And I think that um, there has been some data to show that belt drives can be more efficient. So there's a bike radar uh, article that I've got up in front of me here that's um, uh, basically saying that over about 200 something watts, the belt drive becomes more efficient. Um, And I would would wager that most people who are interested in that 1% final efficiency <laughs> gain are probably yeah. putting out more than 200 watts for a lot of their ride. Um, so for me, the question would be, is it better to go down the path of this extremely complicated chain or something that seems to be gaining traction other ways with a, a belt drive where it's just becoming a more more common, lower maintenance option? Um, and this is, I don't have an answer to this, but uh, it's just kind of a, a question like, is it worth the extra complexity and the extra maybe reliability challenges? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the one of their claims is that it's actually going to be more reliable and last longer. And for now, they are um, they're not dealing with the shifting issue at all. And for now, these are only track chains, right? So they're only designed for mm-hmm. for uh, a fixed gear bicycle. Um, but apparently, you know, at least the article um, claims that they're they are working on some way of. Uh, of, of shifting this thing, obviously it it would be a, a, a redesign of the uh, of the current uh, derailleur systems. But hey, who knows? And I'm all for innovation. I think it's it's kind of fun. Like if you think mm-hmm. about what um, Ceramic Speed is developing with their, uh, have you seen this thing with their like horizontal gear? Um, I, I actually saw it at Eurobike, I think, when they had first introduced yeah. it. So I talked to the engineer who was responsible for it, and it was super cool. Um, that thing very, is wild. Yeah. Very complicated. Um, the cassette yes. was like a work of art, but also a medieval torture device. <laughs> yeah, it definitely lo- did look a little bit like uh, what's that thing called a um, uh, an Iron Maiden? <laughs> yes, in in cassette form. <laughs> yeah, if the UCI yeah. was worried about disc brakes harming someone, oh, then no. this would this is like a meat grinder. <laughs> <laughs> it's a meat grinder. Yep. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, okay. So keep it in the spirit of our, of our shallow dives. Uh, let's talk about a question that came up kind of innocuously. I think we, we, uh, recorded and posted that episode about, uh, Peloton aerodynamics, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, um, that got some interesting conversations going in a completely different direction. And this was, this had to do with, um, with the virtual racing that's, uh, that was happening with, uh, with Ironman mostly, but with some other, you know, smaller, uh, triathlon organizers as well, where, uh, uh, folks were asked to, I mean, any listeners, you're all familiar with virtual racing. This is the end of 2020. So I don't need to describe <laughs> to you how virtual racing works. Um, but most people were, were taking, at least doing their bike legs indoors. Um, and, um, some of the, some of our listeners had complained that that was an unfair advantage, even though, I mean, they could have done it themselves too. So I don't know if, how much of an advantage <laughs> it was, but compared to outdoors, what, what these, uh, these folks were talking, were saying, was that uh, individuals doing um, the their legs virtually were getting, um, unf- well, I'll use their language, unfairly faster times. Um, and so this, of course, made me want to investigate this, uh, this claim and uh, compare what a, you know, a virtual um, performance, how a virtual performance would stack up against the real world. Yeah, it's uh, one of the fundamental questions I have about esports because, you're dealing with this artificially level leveled playing field in some respects. So you you might have riders, and there is some scaling depending on the size of the rider. But you might have riders who are the same height, same weight, but because of their the time that they've spent on their position and because of the testing that they've done, they have a significantly optimized position compared to another physiologically identical rider. Mm-hmm. Um, so why shouldn't those people benefit from this work that they've put in? And this is the question I've always had about esports. For sure. So let's pull back a little bit. So um, what, uh, you know, just very, very quickly, um, you know, what determines how fast you go on a bicycle? We've talked about this ad nauseum. So again, listeners, you probably have heard us talk about this, but just a very- Please refer to any other episode. (laughs) Or many other episodes, please. Um, But uh, what what Andrew's talking about here is, yeah, obviously, you know, the power that you put into the, into the pedals, that's your, that's your power in and power output is aerodynamic drag is the biggest one in, at least in time trials and triathlons actually most other racing. Then there's, you know, gravity. If you're going up a hill, then you got rolling resistance from your tires and tubes. And then you've got some mechanical losses through, um, through the drivetrain, kind of like the chain stuff we were talking about. So in a, in a virtual environment, um, that that is fixed. So at least the the rolling resistance is fixed. It might have it might depend on body weight a little bit, but the mechanical drivetrain efficiency, although it's a fairly small number, is fixed. Um, so the way that that you know, let's say Zwift calculates how fast you're going, they obviously take your wattage, which is super important, and then they figure in your aerodynamic drag based on I think it's BMI, right, Andrew? It's it's the size of the rider. Yeah, yeah. So it's the BMI um, and overall height and weight of the rider, which I mean is tied into BMI, which is what BMI. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's used for the calculation and it, it does scale up and down. So bigger riders do have more drag. However, that's not universally true with outdoor riding. So sometimes bigger riders mm-hmm. who are optimized have lower drag than a smaller rider would. 100%. And this is where it becomes a little bit unfair, or in some respects, you could even look at it as being a little more fair, where it's more of a power game rather than um, tweaking and optimizing other things. Yeah, but that's all, that's like, you know, depending on your brain, that's like half the fun of traveling oh, yeah. is optimizing your position and like making sure that your your shit's the fastest shit out there, you know? <laughs> it's devil's advocate. You're buying, you know, all, <laughs> all, that, all that free speed that you've uh, spent thousands of dollars on or maybe, you know, just some brain cells on um, and uh, and you've acquired it that way. 
an even more obvious, I think, example of how you can you can hack the system. And I'm guilty of this because, you know, I, I, I understand what the playing field is like, is if you're doing a time trial in Zwift and you're on a time trial bike, Zwift assumes that you're, you know, you've got some kind of CDA. And I'll talk about uh, how it stacks up. But you could be riding a road bike, mm-hmm. you know, on your trainer, or you could be on your TT bike and, and on the bar, uh, on the uh, on the brakes, you know, and not not in aero at all. And uh, Zwift is assuming you're in aero because you're you've selected a TT bike from the from your garage, but uh, you may not be an arrow. So there's no way of them to police that yet, right? Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most people who are competing in TTs probably don't hold a TT position for the entire race on Zwift. Indoors, yeah. no way. There's no way. But outdoors, yeah. like there's there's, no way. you can't be competitive by doing that because your drag goes up <laughs> so much. Um, probably oh, like thirty percent increase in drag, and when you're increasing that seventy to ninety percent component of your overall resistance by an additional thirty percent, um, that's yeah. you might as well go home. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So I did some math because um because I was curious and so I uh, and I'm also um uh I, I did I wrote a time trial recently kind of did my best uh, 20k um you know from a fairly unfit perspective but uh, I think my numbers were uh, I was 293 watts on one of the flatter courses in Zwift. Uh, and I did it in like 29 low, like 29 minutes and five seconds or something like that. Um, so I was just, uh, I think my speed ended up being like 41.6. I was like, well, how fast, like, what, what is that? What does that, C, what does that work out in terms of CDA? What would my CDA be? So I made some assumptions. I obviously used my real body mass, um, and, uh, my height. Uh, and then I assumed a coefficient of rolling resistance, like a, a good, uh, fast set of tires, uh, and good pavement. Um, so I used 0.04 for CRR for those of you scoring at home and checking my math. And so then I plugged all of these things into Best Bike Split, which is sort of, you know, uh, an excellent program for this. And I used Ironman Florida as a proxy for a flat course. And um, I kind of, you know, tweaked the knobs a little bit and uh, came up with a CDA of 0.27 or 0.273, something like that. Um, to So that's to go 41 and a half-ish kilometers an hour uh, at a power of 293 watts, which is not very good. I mean, the CDA of 0.273 is not very good. Yeah, I think for, well, we've discussed it before, but for a good triathlete, you're looking at the 0.21 to 0.24 range. Mm-hmm. And for an exceptional triathlete, um, like Alan Hofta comes to mind, we're, we're dealing with something that's well under 0.2. Yep. Um, and even referring back to previous conversations with uh, with Kurt Bergen Taylor, um, some of the track riders are achieving phenomenal numbers well under the the 0.2 mark. Yes. Um, so 0.27 is is pretty modest. Um, it's, well, it's probably not going to reflect real world performance. Actually, I would argue that it would. So if you're looking at an amateur triathlete who is not who hasn't gone through the optimization road, who just mm-hmm. you know picked up a, a tri bike and had it fitted at their local bike shop and hasn't really gone to the the trouble of of doing some of the optimization, maybe running bottles in weird spots. Not that bottles contribute that much, but you know maybe the head position isn't optimized and. But, you know, the whole position is an optimized for aerodynamic drag. 0.27 for somebody who is, so I'm 182 centimeters, which is just under six feet, like 5'11 and a half for our, for our Imperial listeners. And I weigh 83 kilos, which, I don't know, 185-ish pounds, ballpark, something like that. So I'm not a small human by any stretch. So a 0.27 for somebody my size is actually not unreasonable. I remember when we were doing um, uh, VWT scans of some of my some of the folks I've been working with, we saw numbers like that. 
So it's it's totally not not outrageous, right? So it's not optimized. I totally agree with you, but it's not an outrageous number. Yeah, and I think I've got a bit of sample bias too because the people I deal with, um, <laughs> yeah. they're the ones yes. who are spending money on this. So it's uh, it's something they care a lot about, and they've probably somewhat optimized themselves before even coming to see me. So yeah, that's sample bias on my part. But point uh, two seven isn't unreasonable for an entry level triathlete, someone who's sure. trying to get into shape and working on getting more flexibility so that they can get more aggressive. But it's certainly not the pointy end of the the um, the peloton or the pointy end of the group for that. Agreed. Agreed. So then the question, the obvious question is, how is it that at, uh, you know, a fairly modest estimate of a CDA, certainly not like a, a, an aggressive CDA value, how is it the virtual um, times are faster than real world times? And this, there's a really boring answer to this, listeners. It's just the fact that when you're out in the, you know, riding on your local streets and you've got to stop for lights, you've got to turn corners, you have to, you know, um, accommodate sitting up for, for, you know, to take drinks and stuff. Um, and so it's just these, you know, these non-closed course, boring uh, factors that, that make you slower in reality. In fact, if I was on a closed flat course, um, at my 293 watts for 20 kilometers, I would be faster than than 41.6 kilometers per hour because my CDA, I think last time we tested it, I was um, just under 0.25. It was like 0.245, I think, something like that, Andrew. So I would have been, mm-hmm. you know, maybe like 30 seconds to 60 seconds faster. I don't know what, what kind of impact that would make. Uh, so on a perfectly closed course, I would actually be faster. Because one of the things that, that Zwift doesn't do is when, certainly when you go uphill, you, they, they use the physics engine to calculate your, you know, the work you need to do to overcome gravity. But when you turn, when you turn a corner, I'm fairly certain that there is no, um, there is no slowdown. <laughs> Anyone who's come down the Alp de Zwift has oh, yeah. seen that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's doing hairpin corners at 80 kilometers an hour. <laughs> it's scary. I'm still like, I still, my heart rate goes up a little bit when I go down Alp de Zwift. It's still a little bit of a, of an adventure. So fun anecdote to add to that. But, um, again, going back to Eurobike, I think it was 2018, uh, Road Grand Tours had a demo booth with um, virtual reality on their their platform, and people were riding, I think, on a Wahoo trainer at the time. So they had the kicker climb, the headwind, and then virtual reality. So you got a lot of very interesting physical characteristics given to you. So giving the, the elevation change of the bike and the different wind speeds, things like that. But the really funny thing to watch was when people went into hairpin corners, almost <laughs> all the time they would tip the bike over <laughs> because they're trying to lean into a corner, but there's no centrifugal oh, force. <laughs> so they had, they had catchers at the side of the bike because they knew this was going to happen. Oh, I remember from from my days of running the lab, the studio I had in Toronto up until 2018, uh, I was using CompuTrainers and CompuTrainers are, are, um, are noted for being super secure. And so obviously when we, when we, when we set it up, when it was fully operational, we actually had them screwed down into the plywood. So they were, you know, rock solid. But before that, when I was just doing some beta testing and, uh, and didn't have them screwed in, they have a very wide platform, but I actually had folks tip them over like big, (laughs) bigger, bigger guys, uh, out of the saddle who, you know, generate a lot of torque, but also have a higher center of mass. Yeah. It's, it's hard to do, but it's definitely possible. Without even trying to lean into a corner. The the next issue with um, with all the virtual racing, it's going to be an epidemic of indoor injuries. <laughs> Without even riding on rollers. Yeah. Wear your helmet when you're on the trainer. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, yeah, for practice, I might actually have some, some value. 
Actually, that is a good point. Um, uh, a lot of the training I'd done leading up to Ironman Cozumel was done on the trainer and because it was November in Canada, which is not really an outdoor riding time. But the uh, when I got the helmet on in Cozumel and doing some of the, the rides before the race, I really noticed the weight of the helmet. Um, so it was Different. definitely a factor. Okay, let's uh, let's keep rolling. Um, it's getting cold. We, uh, you know, in the in the north here, we just had our first big snowfall in Toronto. It's it's really pretty, but you know, a little bit chilly and and, and soggy out there. Um, and you didn't even need the army to dig you out. We did not need the army. No, it's, <laughs> <laughs> our snowfall was pretty modest. It was it was not that bad. Um, did you guys have the army dig you out? Is that no, no? Toronto did like oh, ten or fifteen years yes, ago. Where right. I remember. Yeah. Anyway, everyone, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know about this, um, everyone in Canada makes fun of Toronto because <laughs> they got like five centimeters of snow and the army had to come rescue them. Well, I was more than five. Um, <laughs> anyway, so as we're starting to head outside and it's getting cold, uh, I just want to spend a bit of time talking about clothing. And we uh, were looking for an expert to talk to us about this. So if you are that expert or you know that expert, um, send them our contact info because we want to talk to them about this. But just some considerations for layering when it's when it's getting cold. Uh, most of you are riding indoors now, but you know there's still some outdoor riding to be done. Uh, but certainly running out, outside is, is super fun in the winter, provided it's not like minus 30. Um, but it's provided you you know you wear the right clothes. It's like the I'm but I'm gonna butcher this quote, and I don't know which Nordic country it comes from, but there's there's no bad weather, only bad clothes, and uh, I really you know I think that that makes uh, a ton of sense. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about layering. Andrew, what do you wear when you go around outside and it's it's cold? What, what's your go-to? <laughs> my go-to is my treadmill. Oh. Um, but aside, <laughs> That's a cop Aside from that. Oh, totally. I'm not going to hide that at all. Um, no, but uh, usually I wear like an Under Armour shirt, so a, com- a tighter compression shirt. And then depending on how cold it is, I'll put maybe a sleeveless like merino wool uh, vest on. I've got that that I use for skiing as well. Uh, and then I'll layer up maybe a t-shirt on top of that. And if it's really cold, a long sleeve shirt on top of that as well. Um, so I usually go multiple layers. Mm -hmm. Most of them are fairly breathable at the, the lower end or like closer to the body. Um, and I do very similar for the lower body as well. So, um, like compression leggings and, um, yeah, I rarely go out when it's cold enough that I need too many layers on the, the lower body. <laughs> sure. Especially um, if you have a treadmill but, at home, it's, that's a, that's an easy one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but I have gone out snowshoeing when it's been minus 20 and yeah. on like four to five hour to six hour snowshoe ventures, um, that makes a huge difference, especially the one, uh, trail that I like doing. So if anyone's in the, the Calgary area, um, one of my favorite snowshoeing trails is the Rockbound Lake Trail, which is about 10 kilometers up and about a thousand meters elevation gain and then 10 kilometers back down. Whoa. Um, this one is treacherous because like nothing to do with the path, but you get to the top and you've built up heat because you're going uphill the whole time. Uh, and then you turn around and you get cold. <laughs> you get really cold really quickly when you're not generating that heat. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, so one thing I want to, I want to, um, latch onto what you said is, uh, is a, a tight base layer. And I think this is absolutely critical. Um, this is the kind of the foundation well, base foundation of, uh, of good smart layering. 
Um, and this is, uh, this is where it's, it's important that your, you know, that garment is, um, wicking. It pulls that sweat off your body because sweat makes you cold, right? And that's the, that's the reason why we sweat. So you don't, you want to have as little sweat next to you as possible in cold conditions and you'll still sweat because like in, you know, in Andrew's example, there are going to be periods where the activity that you're engaging in is higher output. So your, your, your body is going to naturally generate sweat. And as endurance athletes, we're all very well adapted to sweating as we've talked about in the past. So that, <clears throat> that base layer, there are a couple of key components to it. It's not, it doesn't necessarily need to be warm. In fact, I'm, I only, only in the very coldest times will I use like a, an actual thermal base layer. I have a couple of very lightweight winter base layers that I'm a huge fan of. And I like them because they're, first of all, they're snug. So they're next to skin everywhere. So anything that's baggy isn't going to do the job. The only way that it's going to pull sweat off your skin is if it's in very intimate contact with your skin. <laughs> and every time I like, I pull one of these on, I'm like, oh, yeah, COVID, COVID body. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's getting more and more intimate with it's, your skin. <laughs> as you. <laughs> Our intimacy is increasing with time. Yes. Um, so, so it does have to be, it does have to be, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be compressive necessarily. Um, but it does have to be next to skin. Um, and then over that, uh, I like what you said about the, the vest, I think keeping, keeping kind of the trunk warm is, is a priority. So, um, I'm a fan of, you know, if it's cold enough, I'll do windproof vest, like a cycling vest, even when I'm running, I'm a big fan of that. Um, and if it's really cold, kind of like, a uh, a lighter weight, um, but still windproof jacket also works if it's raining or if it's, or if it's, you know, wet snowing on you. So you don't want, you know, you don't want that added moisture of precipitation adding to, to the problem. Um, but, um, those are, those are the key components on my legs. I actually run fairly hot. So I'll run. So today I ran in shorts in the snow and I got a lot of really funny looks, which I actually kind of quite enjoy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, up until like minus two, minus five uh, Celsius, I can usually do without uh, covering my legs, running in shorts. Um, but uh, yeah, beyond that, you again the same same thing applies. You want something that's fairly snug to keep your keep that sweat off your off your legs. And then um, usually I find like if I need two more than one layer on my legs, it's too cold to go running. <laughs> that's that's how I feel about it. Yeah, that was kind of what I was getting at. Um, yeah. Except I think if you need one layer on your legs, then it's too cold for me. Yeah, I'd I mean, I don't have the luxury of a treadmill. So if I'm going to get any kind of running in, and with all the with all our gyms closed, I don't have access to any treadmills. And so mm -hmm. I'm kind of, mm -hmm. this winter is going to be like, you're either running in the cold or you're not running. So that's, uh, that's, the, that's the decision making there. So one tip I do have on treadmill maintenance is don't let Cody Beals run on your treadmill because he goes too fast and will break it. <laughs> True yeah. story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Be careful who uses your treadmill for sure. Yeah. So yeah, so that's that's on layering um, and and running in the winter. It can absolutely be done, and it's uh, it's a good idea too to just you know when you first get out there, you you should feel cold mm -hmm. because if you don't feel cold when you first get out there, you're going to be too hot, and then you'll probably be too cold because you'll be sweating too much and, and and cooling off. There's one other really important point that I want to make, and this is from personal experience, but the snowshoeing trail I mentioned. So going up it, it's not like it's a leisurely, well, for me, it wasn't a leisurely jaunt up the hill. Like I was keeping a heart rate of around 150 to 160. Um, but by the time I got to the top, I had sweated enough that my gloves were quite cold and wet. Mm -hmm. And the first time I went out, it was, yeah, minus 18, minus 20 when I got to the, the top. And 
uh, I was very close to frostbite. So I had fortunately brought some hand warmers and a spare set of gloves that were dry. So I think having dry clothes and just preparing for the elements, preparing for the worst case, especially if you're doing a longer run and don't have access to any shelter, um, I think that can really help you avoid any issues um, just in case the worst uh, scenario happens. Yeah, that's really that's really excellent advice. I think we talked we touched on this when we talked about trail running, and this is uh, a similar you know a similar kind of uh, thought process that if you're going to be somewhere where you're far away from um, from civilization, from being able to you know call an Uber or or uh, far away from your car, uh, far away from transit, if you feel comfortable using transit now, um, then you definitely want to be prepared with uh, with things that will keep your keep your toes and, and hands attached to your your body. One other really quick point I want to make is that there was some research done by DRDC, and they had talked about this when I did my heat testing, actually. But they were doing testing to see how to improve dexterity in fingers. So for like mechanics or um, if you're trying to hold a gun or something for the military, um, they wanted to improve hand dexterity. So they they looked at heating the hands themselves, but they actually found it was more effective to have the core at a higher temperature. So you're heating... Um, your inner workings, basically, and you get warm blood going to your peripheries, that was actually better for dexterity. Even though it feels better to have gloves on, mm-hmm. um, apparently that was their conclusion. So I thought that was pretty interesting. It makes sense, right? Because you're, the reason, one of the reasons your hands get cold, uh, aside from the fact that it's like high surface area to volume, right? So you, they're, they're natural radiators. Mm-hmm. But um, what ends up happening, obviously, is when your core temperature just begins to drop, your body will do the opposite of what we always talk about and, and restrict blood flow to the peripheral, uh, to the the periphery to the skin, especially to the to the appendages like your your hands and your feet, in order to conserve the core temperature. Right, that that's a survival mechanism, so that you've got you get less blood turnover, and therefore you get you know your hands actually get colder. Um, and so if you keep that core warm, or if you at least trick your brain into thinking that your core is warm, that mechanism doesn't kick in. Yeah, at that point, your body is trying to keep you alive, not keep yes. you comfortable. So Correct. there's yeah. different priorities there. One hundred percent. Okay, so it's too cold to uh, too cold to run outside or ride outside, and we're on our trainers. I know I haven't ridden outside other than to like you know uh, ride with my with my boys to school um, in in maybe a week or two, which I feel kind of bad about. But I reactivated my Zwift membership and I've been let's say enjoying my Zwift rides. Um, and uh, let's talk a little bit about the transition from outdoor to indoor and some of the some of the things to consider. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Um, personally, I stay indoor a lot of the year anyway. And we have talked about this in the past, looking yep. at how indoor workouts can be more effective. But there are reasons you want to go outside, like bike handling or um, just getting getting out and staying sane. <laughs> yes. Um, but but I think they're avoiding stop signs, things like that. You can do intervals without having to worry about interruptions or worry about safety. Totally. Um, but again, most people are coming indoors at this point in the year. Yeah. So I want to talk about specifically the folks that are generally riding outdoors and now they're coming indoors. Um, and so there's a few things to consider. Um, for for example, if you've got multiple bikes and you've got a de- dedicated trainer bike, um, I've actually had this, this uh, it wasn't quite an issue, but it was like a question that came up with somebody that I coach where um, this this athlete was developing some uh, some knee pain and uh, we were, you know, we did a little bit of digging and investigating and we changed some training parameters, but we also realized that that her bike fit indoors was dramatically different than her bike fit 
outdoors. Her her outdoor slash race bike was had a different fit, uh, different saddle height in this case, and dramatically different as it turned out um, than her indoor bike. So making sure that your fit is uh, is exactly the same, provided of course they're like you know they're both similar types of bike, like two road bikes or two TT bikes. Um, making sure that that fit is is very at least very similar is is key to a smooth transition. That's that's one thing I would first double check. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've had some issues in the past with basically the same thing where my road bike and my TT bike didn't have the same saddle height. Mm-hmm. And I found it was, uh, it, it is pretty noticeable or I found it to be pretty noticeable with the difference I had. Yeah. Um, but it took a while to kind of get it right and get comfortable in it. With a TT bike and a road bike, there's there's sometimes a, a case to be made that you may want a slight difference, but the difference should be slight. Uh, some people really feel the, di- the minor differences in um, in uh, position changes and especially saddle height and other people do not. And it's um, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just some people are really sensitive and other people can, what my, like the, fo- the, the gentleman who taught me how to fit bikes, what he used to call, you could ride a two by four and you'd feel, you'd feel fine. Um, so for those, for those folks um, who are those micro adjusters, uh, I think that's the term for them. Um, for them, it has to be really quite close, but uh, there are some cases to be made for a slightly higher saddle height in a TT position for hip angle, but you do definitely have to be careful careful with that. So when I, my, my example was comparing, let's say, you know, the same style of bike. Yeah. And I think I personally fall into the micro adjuster category. Um, I do find that very, very small changes can impact my comfort. So it's, it's why it feels weird when I first hop on one and why it it does take a while to get used to it. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Um, Also indoors, obviously, you know, the the um as we talked about in the Zwift question, you're uninterrupted, right? Like you never stop pedaling. There are no red lights. There are no, you know, no no like coffee breaks with your friends. So you're in that saddle position for really long periods of time. So it's you know it's it's almost like a torture che- a torture test for your butt. Um, if you can survive long indoor rides, that means that the shorts and the saddle are are doing something right. Um, but one thing I want to talk about specifically is, uh, training in, in the arrow position. And this is a, a much broader topic of when, you know, whether or not you should be training an arrow or whether or not you should be sitting up. And there's, there are a lot of opinions on this and that's maybe saved for another, another discussion. But if you, you know, safe to say that if you're a triathlete and we talked about the value of being an arrow as a triathlete or a time trialist, that's the whole point for having that bike. Um, you do need to spend some time if you're training in aero for sure. Um, and if you're transitioning, especially from riding uh, a road bike most of the season um, and maybe just doing a little bit of time trial uh, riding and then you're going indoors and now you're you're on the aero bars, uh, I would treat the riding in the TT position almost like an interval workout where even if your intensity isn't, you know, let's say you're, you're doing steady state work, um, treat your, your arrow position, your time in arrow position as your quote unquote work interval, and then sit up as your quote unquote recovery interval. And the same way that you would progress through a run walk, let's say if you were having run for a while, um, treat it the same way where every day, every session or every week you add more time in arrow and less time out of arrow, um, as a way to, to get comfortable with that position. It's a much more sustainable practice than, um, than going to the point where the arrow position is, you know, uncomfortable enough that you you can't maintain it any longer for the rest of your ride after like 20 minutes in it you know um that that could be a question of bike fit maybe you're you know maybe you need a bike fit and if your aero position is that uncomfortable but it could also be a position or it could also be a question of just lack of 
you know, of practice, like those muscles haven't been used in a while and, or, you know, your, your butt needs to harden up a little bit too. And especially if you're preparing for a race. So like I mentioned earlier, the one thing I noticed was not wearing a helmet uh, was actually a significant impact. So mm-hmm. you don't have to go maybe with a full helmet, but um, having like a, I mean, full aero helmet, but having a road helmet or something to create weight on your head. Um, if you're doing an off season race, like, you know, a destination race or something in a warm place, I would, I would definitely recommend, even if you're riding in aero position, to put your helmet on, um, despite how much your friends are going to make fun of you for seeing pictures of you on the trainer with a helmet. You can also not take pictures of yourself on the trainer with a helmet. Or you can be like Alan Hovden. And it say, always tends to get out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you can be like Alan Hovden and say, look, they, you know, I listened to Endurance Innovation. We were talking about how it's important to, re- to train with a helmet on. And he, he actually posted a photo on Instagram with himself in a helmet in his TT, <laughs> in his TT position saying that he was... Uh, you know, this is, he was doing this for, uh, for, for training for a race. So yeah, kudos, buddy. Um, I think I got one more, no, I've got a couple more things, um, in our, in our very shallow dive. I was just uh, listening to uh, a presentation, uh, being given by, uh, a member of the Canadian running series organization. And for those of you who don't know who those folks are, they're the, they're the good people who put on a lot of races in, uh, in Canada, uh, in uh, both in pretty much across the country, they got races in Montreal, uh, in Toronto, in Vancouver, and I'm sure I'm missing lots. In Toronto, they do the Scotiabank Waterfront Marathon, which may no longer be Scotiabank. I don't exactly know who the sponsor is, uh, but the Waterfront Marathon. There is a CRS race in Montreal, the Montreal Marathon, I believe. Uh, they they have raced in Vancouver. Anyway, so it's a big kind of Canadian race organization. Um, and, um, this, this individual was talking about, uh, the future of racing in 2021. And I was hoping to learn something that was kind of like groundbreaking and, uh, and, and kind of, you know, newsworthy and sadly it wasn't. And that's, you know, but that's cause that's the environment that we live in that they, they can't, you know, they're, they're taking the, I think a very responsible position of, of not running races unless they can guarantee a safe experience. Unlike some, you know, uh, <clears throat> Ironman uh, events that that have <laughs> gone on. Um, well, when profit is the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're you know they're they're planning for races in in 2021, but they're not going to hold them until obviously they can they can keep folks safe. So, which has been kind of the position of everybody in 2020. So, sadly, no no um, remarkably uh, exciting news there. But I did hear, uh, I saw on my social feeds that uh, the Toronto Triathlon Festival is planning for a race in July. Um, and they're, they're friends of the show. And I've done that race every year, but one, I think that they've run it and I'm a huge fan. Um, so hopefully my fingers are crossed for them that, that it does go, go ahead. Uh, this is a, a plug for the TTF race. Uh, it, I believe it's July 18th that they're, you know, uh, with if things improve dramatically, they'll they'll hold it uh, in Toronto, downtown Toronto. So I'm just thinking, um, if it if it goes, I might uh, try and make it out. I've got some family in Ontario that I need to visit, and Excellent. that would be a great reason to come out. I've never done the race before, oh, and so I've fun. heard great things about it. Yeah, it's super fun. And then also, if you're supporting, well, the only thing is, if you're supporting me in um, in uh, Quebec, uh, that's it's like two weeks apart, so it's going to be an interesting. Uh, um, yeah, you can, you can have an extended East coast vacation or not East coast. East, you East versus coast. my family. This is a, yeah. it's a tough one. Sophie's choice. Sophie's choice. That's right. Well, you know, we'll, we'll figure something else out for Canada, man. It's kind of, that might actually, I think if anything that has a higher likelihood of running just because yes. it's so much smaller and it's so much more spread out over the wilderness of mm-hmm. the Eastern townships. So that's still on my race calendar. 
Uh, so one last thing that I, I told is a, is a very shallow dive because I know almost nothing about this. It was just something I heard on a podcast. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, try to regurgitate <laughs> it on our podcast. This was on um, the excellent radio lab podcast. That's probably on the top of, you know, most people's playlists because it's just so good. Um, and that is a, a finding and I don't know anything about this study. So here we go. You can, you can uh, lampoon me for this, but uh, I'm going to try to find it and maybe even get the researcher on our show. Suggesting that people who are good at lying to themselves are also very successful in sport, um, and this is this is kind of a, a, you know an interesting an interesting finding. And the the reasoning that uh, these researchers presented for this is that in order to be kind of at the top of the game, in order to really win and excel, um, you have to convince yourself that you're the best. Right, that you are invincible, and uh, and that ability to you know you can call it motiv- motivational self talk, or you can call it lying to yourself. It really depends on your <laughs> on your perspective. But uh, either way, folks who are really successful at you know convincing themselves, let's say that uh, that the, the that reality may not be that their perception of reality may not exactly match reality. If you're successful at doing that, you will actually have more success at uh, motivational self talk. I think. So this is complete supposition, but I'm just thinking back to our episode on swearing, and I'm wondering if those are somewhat related. So hmm. when you swear to yourself, you're you know trying to finish an interval, you're trying to push yourself that much harder. In some ways, that's kind of motivational self-talk or, or lying to yourself. Um, but you're you're trying to convince your body to do something that you know it can't do, but you're not believing that it can't do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe so. It's just uh, just a guess, but um, but that's the first thing that came to mind for me. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm gonna have to dig up. Uh, I'm gonna go poke through the the show notes of this Radio Lab episode and uh, and see if I can find the the original research and and see if I can get the the individual on because we've been one of the things listeners I've wanted to do is talk a little bit more about the the psychology of racing and training because I think it's a big mm-hmm. um, it's a big and very interesting and and I think under researched maybe not under researched but certainly in like the pop you know, pop sporting understanding. It's, it's underappreciated. It, it's not as sexy as some of the other topics, I think, which yeah. is why it doesn't get as much attention. Yeah. Maybe that's, that's the right way to say it. And so it's something that I've, uh, I've kind of been looking at myself and, uh, I would, I think, uh, I, we, we should get an expert to talk to, um, this on the show. Well, we do have someone coming up in the next couple weeks, I think about six weeks, but, uh, we, we will be talking, I think, about the influence of music and interval training. Is that not correct? Yes, that is. So that's... Um, <laughs> Kara Georges. Kara Georges. Yeah, there you go. We're, we're going to start that interview by asking him to pronounce his name, of course. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh yeah, if you're if you're listening right now, this isn't us trying to be mean. It's just we don't know. <laughs> we're we're embarrassing ourselves more than anything here. Yeah. So yeah, that we we talked about the effects of music on training uh a few months back and we were we were getting the um the professor who uh the researcher who published that study on the show in uh in early of in early next year. Yeah, I think it's a super interesting topic though. And diving more into the psychology of racing and how to um, how to extract that extra performance or how to make yourself train harder. Um, I think those are really interesting topics and I would love to deep, to dive deeper into them. 100%. Um, what do you think, Andrew? Good place to uh, get out of the pool? <laughs> if I can yeah. continue to torture this metaphor a little bit? Yeah, I think that last one was in danger of diving into <laughs> water that was too shallow. Oh, but, uh, you're just making it yeah, worse. But- 
<laughs> yeah, I think it's time to, to roll that one up then. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Uh, folks, thank you as always for listening. And here's my, uh, here's my request. Um, it takes literally 60 seconds to do this. And I'm, uh, I'm going to ask everyone who is still listening to the show who is not sick of our jokes and our, meta- and our tortured metaphors to uh, write a review. So it's great way that you give us um, a five-star review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Those really do count and they've been adding up and uh, we really appreciate it. I think across platforms, we're up to 33 five-star reviews, which is awesome. Considering that more than half of the podcasts in the podcast diverse have no reviews whatsoever so thank you very much listeners for that that is amazing uh but if you want to write some words even like a line or two that even uh, that furthers our reach that really is what the the uh, the podcast search engines look for when they're recommending podcasts to new listeners so you'll really uh, help us in- increase our reach by writing a review so please consider doing that uh so with that thank you very much for listening and uh join us next week